Support for the Capital Connection comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities with Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. It's the Capital Connection. Hi, I'm David Gistina. Back with us this week is New York State Assembly Member Deborah Glick, Democrat, Chair of the Committee on Environmental Conservation, who represents New York's 66th Assembly District in New York City. We welcome you back to the Capital Connection, Assembly Member Deborah Glick. Thank you very much, David. Always happy to be with you. And I with you in perhaps the most important issue of our time, the environment, climate change, and what we not only as a country and a world can do, but particularly as the Empire State, New York State. We know about the Environmental Bond Act, of course, but I know you want to talk about a few different environmental bills that you're looking at. One is called the Birds and Bees. Explain. Well, thank you very much. I do want to let your listeners know that I became the new chair of the Environmental Conservation Committee this year. And so it was a very busy year getting our arms around all of the bills in the committee, but we were very focused on A7640, which is a bill I have with Senator Hoyle, uh, Hoyleman Siegel. Uh, it balances the harm that neonicotinoids do to pollinators like birds and bees uh, with their effectiveness to manage pests, particularly invasive species in the agricultural space. Uh, the prohibition would be on the routine use of seeds coated with these neurotoxins, uh, which persist in the soil and we believe is vital to protecting birds, bees, uh, water quality, and uh, other creatures. I mean, there there may be many factors involved in the dramatic loss of birds and bees and other pollinators like butterflies, but once what are referred to colloquially as neonics came on the scene in the 90s, their indiscriminate and prophylactic use impacts the entire plant. It's a systemic chemical and these chemicals eventually are consumed by pollinators, poisoning them, and can persist in the soil, run into our streams. They are areas where they have been detected not only in water streams, but in mammals that have either been in those fields or drinking the water adjacent to those fields. So there are concerns that the Farm Bureau has expressed and we did amend the bill to, we believe, address concerns that were raised by the Farm Bureau. So it's on the governor's desk. It is a crucial piece of protecting our water, soil, and the vital role that our pollinators play in ensuring that we do, in fact, have crops. 
Assemblymember Glick, what's the chance and what is your sense that your fellow Democrat, the governor, Kathy Hochul, will sign the measure? I'm sure that she's hearing from the chemical industry and from the Farm Bureau, but I know that she is also hearing very much from organic farmers that don't want any of the fugitive residue on their properties and from individuals in the environmental community that believe strongly that this is a minor step in protecting it. It is about seeds coated for corn, soybean, and wheat. It allows for use for specific invasive species. It also allows that if there is an insufficient supply of untreated seeds, that that's taken into account by the Department of Environmental Conservation. So as I said in the beginning, We believe the bill balances the concerns raised, but the importance of ensuring that we reduce the casual and regular use of these neurotoxins. Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about is recognizing that we live in an ecosystem, that all these things are connected. And you mentioned them, you know, it affects the seed, the plant, and it gets into the soil. So we know what happens when there are pollutants that impact the earth and the humans on it. Why then, my question, I think you hinted at that, why then don't people come together since this is the health of all of us, the children and the earth, to solve the problem? Is it just because of greed? Is it because of money? Is it because the producers want to maximize their business interests? Well, you know, I think that there have been preliminary studies by Cornell that indicate that it does not increase the yield. And frankly, you know, I don't want to, certainly not to farmers or tribute greed. They have one of the toughest jobs in the state. But certainly chemical companies and seed companies can charge more for seeds that are coated. And the chemical industry has done a lot of damage, but it is their business. So they will continue to press that this is the most important thing and that it's necessary. And farmers, of course, are concerned. We've seen climate change affect the way in which they can. Sure. It impacts their ability to make a living. Excuse me for interrupting, Assemblymember Glick. Just an article in the Times yesterday I read about apple farmers in Warwick being impacted by heavy rains that have caused a problem with many of their crops. We had a very late killing frost in May, and that was very damaging, followed by a lot more rain this year at perhaps inopportune times. So it's always a challenge for farms over which nobody has any control, and we have seen changes. So I appreciate their concern that some other change could negatively impact them. We believe that in the end, the continued use of these neurotoxins, which persist in the soil, are actually damaging to their future, as well as to the future of birds, bees, butterflies, etc. Sure. And many of these farmers, I think we would both agree, that suffer are the small farmers, not the big you know, factory farms that have the output and the production to survive. It's these small farms that inevitably suffer the most when you have a damaging rainstorm that kills crops, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that while we've seen a loss of dairy farms, I think there may be a slight uptick in smaller farms that focus on vegetables. And we have young farmers who want to get into the business. Some of them find it challenging to find good land that's affordable for them. 
particularly now that they're in competition with energy producers looking to buy large areas for solar farms. It has definitely been an issue in a lot of counties in upstate New York. Uh, I think there's a way to do both, Um, but I think that there is concern that the energy companies have big dollars and it's uh, very seductive for someone struggling to give up some part of what is very good farming land uh, to uh, solar uh, production uh, for the for the stabilization of the farm. So yes, the small farmers are the backbone of our economy in uh, the agricultural space in New York, uh, and they do need um, assistance in a number of areas, but some of that includes Uh, the long-term view that we all need pollinators in order to ensure the crops are able to germinate. We're speaking with the chair of the Committee on Environmental Conservation, that's State Assemblymember Deborah Glick, a Democrat. Well, Assemblymember Glick, let's move on to another environmental bill I know you're focusing on, which is the banning of killing contests. Tell our listeners who may not know what these are what they are. Well, they're wildlife killing contests. The bill would preclude organized contests where people compete for prizes by killing the most of a particular species or the heaviest example or the smallest animal within a specified time frame. Nothing in the bill, which I share with Senator Kennedy from the Buffalo area, would ban any farmer or landowner from killing a nuisance animal that's predating on their livestock or on companion animals within, obviously, the regulations of the Department of Environmental Conservation. This is totally focused on organized contests. It doesn't impact hunting deer, bear, or turkey, which are very regulated hunting seasons. And it doesn't impact a fish derby because fish are not considered wildlife. That's why there is the U.S. Wildlife and Fish Service. And the state is charged with protecting and preserving our natural resources, which includes wildlife. The bill is widely supported by lots of organizations from environmental advocates to the Adirondack Council and support from individual farmers and hunters who believe, particularly hunters, who feel that this gives hunting a negative image, that it upsets the balance of nature in an area, killing all of the predators in a particular area is not helpful, certainly with coyotes. The more you kill, the more you spur reproduction, so you can actually ultimately wind up with more coyotes. So we believe it's an appropriate measure for our time to ensure that we don't make the killing of wildlife a contest. From that bill to another that you're now working on and focusing on that's been in the news recently. And if anyone gets a package in the mail, I won't mention from any particular place, but it usually takes me about 25 minutes to open it because there's layers and layers of packaging. A lot of it is plastic. We know that each and every one of us has plastic in our bloodstream. Go look it up. And to that end, you're trying to reduce the packaging, the waste that wraps around all of our products most of the time. It is Senator Harkum and I. He chairs the Senate Committee on Environment and Conservation. We uh, each sponsor in our own houses the bill, the Packaging Waste and Reduction Act um, and Infrastructure Act. 
Uh, it is intended to create a system whereby there is an incentive to reduce the uh, amount of packaging waste and at the same time relieve the burden on uh, taxpayers mun through municipalities that are paying to dispose of the waste. And some of the waste, as you mentioned, really can't be disposed of. Plastic, there are very few types of plastics that are actually recyclable. Some are, but most are not. And the um, fossil fuel industry, it, plastic is a byproduct of uh, petroleum refinery. And um, that they see that the that fossil fuels are being uh, phased out over the next you know number of years to decades, and so they are not just shifting their focus but really doubling down on plastic uh, manufacturing and um, it is uh, the bill we had a uh, a hearing on it. Last week, uh, heard from a lot of different players in the field. The point of it is to require manufacturers to pay into a fund. It's frequently referred to as an extended producer responsibility. They pay into a fund, and there are uh, fees that are based on the amount of waste they produce, and the fees reduce over time based on the reduction of the production of that packaging. And so it's uh, decidedly arranged as a carrot. The less you produce, the less you pay. And if you create a refillable product, uh, and there are many of these now appearing in the marketplace, uh, you don't pay anything. And if you're a very small manufacturer, you're not captured in the legislation. Interesting. Now, you mentioned infrastructure, and this is important when it comes to climate change. I see an estimate here that New York would have to spend $10 billion annually by 2050. And here's a quote I pulled from you. Effective climate measures and improving the state supply of renewable energy does not have to break the bank, Assemblymember Glick says. Quote, there is a lot of fear-mongering about how much this is going to cost. The state has spent billions of dollars on recovery from major storms. 500-year storms that come every other year. Individuals have their insurance costs going up because of the damage to their homes. I know the Republicans have used this issue. Well, it's going to cost New York too much. You can't do it alone. The other states have to do it. The federal government has to be involved. The rest of the world has to catch up. But we're talking about the earth. If we don't take care of our situation right here in New York, and the idea that climate change offers an opportunity for new kinds of jobs to help support and protect the environment— is it really as dire as they make it sound about how much this is going to cost? Well, I, I'd say a few things about that. One, uh, the specific infrastructure I was referring to was using some of the resources from those uh, fees on uh, packaging waste to increase and improve uh, our recycling capacity across the state. Uh, but we are going to be doing a hearing at the end of November to talk about insurance and climate. And I do think that um, we frequently get into a debate where we only discuss one side of the balance sheet. Um, 
the one that we think is most relevant to our uh, position. So I have raised this, that there is a continued cost. And you see in Florida, people cannot get uh, insurance on their homes in many places, if not most. Uh, And it's quite a crisis in Florida. Uh, And it can impact many of us. We've all, no matter where we live in the state, we have seen flooding that has been beyond our normal expectations. So it costs taxpayers because roads have to be fixed, remediation of increasing the size of sluice pipes in various areas where water drains off of roadways or away from homes. Those are quite expensive, and we have done, I would dare say, billions of dollars of repairs between municipal efforts, government efforts to rebuild roads, and homeowners' cost, both in actually repairing their properties in different ways and the cost of their insurance rates. So we're already paying for it. And if we can stem the tide of climate change, we can perhaps minimize those costs, not just in dollars and cents, but what happens to a family when their home is flooded and their memories are lost and cherished possessions are damaged or disappear. There are emotional costs to New Yorkers for those kinds of impacts from flooding. So I think that it's incumbent upon the government to recognize the threat, the danger, and to respond to it in a reasonable fashion that balances the concerns of the cost of making these transitions and the fact that if we don't make the transitions, there is perhaps an even greater cost. Yeah, and one of the other costs is the loss of life. And we saw a woman swept away not so long ago in heavy rains down in Westchester County area, and she died as a result. She literally stepped out her door hearing the rushing water and washed away. So these are really life-and-death situations And I think, if I can paraphrase what you're saying, is we're really talking about the difference between short-term thinking and long-term thinking. If we look down the road and we see what's coming, we should act now to repair the infrastructure, to get it ready so that we're not then cleaning up the mess, which will cost even more down the road if we don't deal with it now. Yes, and I have a bill, another bill with Senator Harcum that would require permits for Class C streams There are permits when you're doing any work in a Class A or Class B stream, but Class C streams include streams that are large enough for fishing and boating and impact our drinking water. And the U.S. Supreme Court made a change and really undermined the ability of the federal EPA to oversee clean water. And it's incumbent upon the state government to step up to protect streams, rivers, lakes, preserve fish, wildlife, and safeguard drinking water. You know, the Supreme Court was quite reckless there and in other ways. And we, if the federal EPA has been limited in their ability to regulate the nation's waterways, New York State has to step up to protect ours. It also is a flood mitigation issue. So we want to be sure that our streams are in good shape so that when there are heavy rains, they can accommodate that extra flow. 
You're listening to The Capital Connection. I'm David Gustina, and we're speaking with Assemblymember Deborah Glick. She is a Democrat and chair of the Committee on Environmental Conservation. And I want to move to a different subject, and I want to relate it in this way. As someone who was the first openly LGBTQ member of the state legislature, I am sure, I'm imagining that you've experienced stereotyping, probably witnessed homophobia in action, And we see right now with what's going on between Israel and Palestine and, of course, Hamas attacking Israel and the response, an incredible rise in anti-Semitism. The governor has been speaking out about it. We have been reporting about the incident at Cornell University. It's not the first time and it probably won't be the last time we'll see this kind of thing. And, of course, I want to add, too, that we've seen an attack on Muslims, perceived Muslims or Arabs as well. But this kind of thing that rears its ugly head, that seems to always be under the surface, I wonder if you might share your thoughts on what's happening right now. And, you know, in a state like New York, where many people say, well, it's a blue state, it's a liberal state, it's a progressive state, but not so fast. Well, certainly we've seen a rise in hate crimes. And while this terrible murder in Chicago of this six-year-old boy, because he and his mom are Palestinian, was not just horrific, but disgraceful. But I also have to say that gay people have been under attack from very ultra-conservative elements, particularly from the other party, from Republicans, and demonizing and marginalizing people because of who they are or what their skin color is or what their religion is, is antithetical to our pluralistic society and why America is a beacon to the world. I'm not only LGBTQ, I am Jewish, and I have to say that the fight in the Middle East, the barbarous assault by Hamas, it's a terrorist organization. This was not a war. This was an attack that was brutal, and the taking of hostages is something that we haven't seen in our memory in the last 50, 60 years. But I will say that the rise in anti-Semitic attacks didn't just start now. It has been under the surface for some period of time. This has just accelerated it. And I have to say that having young people screaming at Jewish students, Jewish parishioners, is to me borders on what Jews were beginning to experience in Europe in the 30s. And I know that after 9-11, anyone perceived to be Arab was assaulted, attacked, and that was wrong and terrible. And I would like to hear people who are supportive of uh, Palestinians likewise raise their voice and say that it is wrong to attack Jews just because they're Jews. And I think that it's, you know, a very complicated geopolitical situation, not handled by the Foreign Affairs Committee of the state legislature, which doesn't exist. But it is, it's a concerning time. And I think that post-pandemic, we have seen a lack of societal norms in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways. And I know that young people in particular having two or three years of their lives completely disrupted, their education undermined, uh, has not helped. But this hate in whatever cloth it comes is wrong. 
and has to be addressed strongly. And I have no idea what this youngster at Cornell was thinking, why the posts were just so shockingly out of the norm. There is a reason for everything, but not an excuse. Yeah, and then you have the former populist president, Donald Trump, who's the frontrunner in the coming election. He's the one that picked at all these scabs, isn't he? Including anti-Semitism when he said there were good people on both sides as they were screaming, the Druze won't control us out in Charlottesville. Yeah, I think that, you know, the erosion of civility may have been exacerbated by Donald Trump, but it was there before. I think it started with actually Newt Gingrich. But I think that it really was on steroids with the former president. And I I don't understand, particularly among people who consider themselves religious conservatives, how someone who is a serial adulterer, a boastful sexual abuser and predator is their champion. I don't understand that at all. And I think that There have been Republicans who've walked away from the Republican Party as a result. There are independents who leaned Republican, who are repulsed by this. And we've seen uh, the election deniers, when the public had a chance to vote, have been rejected across the country. That the House Republicans have selected an election denier and that someone who voted to support and certify the election was poisonous to them shows an internal rot in the Republican Party that only Republicans can address. They don't seem ready to do that. The public has to reject this across the board. And anybody who believes that the election uh, was not fairly determined and supports election denying and other election conspiracies have to be defeated at the ballot box. Are you worried about the democracy? Decidedly. Decidedly worried when someone who espouses the ultra-conservative, really Christian nationalist ideas of new Speaker Johnson, yes, of course I'm worried. That's going to have to be the final word from Assemblymember Deborah Glick. You've been listening to the Capital Connection, and we are out of time. I can't thank you enough, Assemblymember Glick, for taking the extra time today to speak with me. I ran a little bit over, but I wanted to get your final thoughts there, and I only hope that means you'll come back again for another discussion in the future. Always happy to talk to you, and you know WAMC is near and dear to my heart. The Capital Connection is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. You can listen to The Capital Connection anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. And join us again next week at this same time for another political conversation. For The Capital Connection, I'm David Gustina. Support for the Capital Connection comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities through the Public Schools Unite Us initiative.